Rise Up Chorus presents Meet the Musicians Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Lapine. Now, let's meet the musicians. Welcome to the fourth episode of Meet the Musicians Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Lapine, and I'm thrilled to be leading you through a musician's story. This episode brings you a true trailblazer, a woman who paved the way for women conductors throughout the country. She's a Grammy Award winner whose visionary leadership has created over 70 album recordings. Our guest is none other than Joanne Folletta, and we're thrilled to have her join our musical community. Joanne, welcome to Meet the Musicians podcast. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. It, the, the pleasure and the honor is all mine. So, Joanne, tell us about your early years. Where did you grow up? Well, we, my sister and I grew up in New York City, and uh, my parents were first-generation Americans. Their, their parents had emigrated from Italy, and, um, and so they grew up in Little Italy, and then uh, we grew up actually in Queens, but in New York City, and... Uh, uh, it was wonderful. I mean, to have a big Italian family around us, you know what that's like and, you know, have holidays together and lots of cousins and things like that. But, um, but it was a very lovely childhood and, and both of my parents loved music, although they were not musicians and they never had the chance to study. I think my father in particular always wanted to study music, but in that kind of an environment in a big family with lots of brothers and sisters, you know, as with your being a first generation, it wasn't so easy, so... But I was did, lucky. Did you have family members who just picked up instruments and played or just got together and sang or made music in any way? Well, I remember my father's uh, brother, my uncle Charlie, was very musical and he could play by ear and he played the guitar and it, he played the piano. And it seemed effortless to him. And I think that there was probably some musical talent in the family. But again, it just wasn't a situation where you could choose music over another profession. You had to go to work and, you know, you had to work in this new country that you, that your parents had come to. And uh, But there was a tremendous love of music. So um, records were on all the time and CDs and we were singing always in our house. So, so it was around us. Was there any particular type of music that your family loved? Well, they loved some of the classical music. I think more of the lighter ones like Strauss waltzes and... Um, things like this, you know, that, that were sort of known. They, uh, they loved Broadway. They loved, loved the music of Broadway and the American Songbook and that kind of music. So, so uh, it was an easy step, I think, to classical music. And um, it just seemed to me an extension of loving music when my father bought me uh, a little guitar when I was seven and uh, arranged for a lesson the next day. And so I started on classical guitar and I loved it. I just loved it. You know, I, I just loved everything about that little guitar, the fragrance of the wood, how the strings felt, even just the open strings to me sounded fantastic. And so that was the beginning of my voyage. But it was thanks to him because he thought that um, since I must have reacted to music, that that uh, that maybe that was a good a good thing to do as an enrichment, you know, just to have music in your life. Finding that right instrument the, the instrument that as you mentioned the feel of it this besides just the sound of it but the feel of it it has to it has to feel natural it has to feel comfortable it has to make sense to that individual person right that's why we're attracted to different things 
It's true. And it's hard with a young person because very often in school, they're assigned an instrument or they are playing an instrument because they happen to have one in the house and, and it may not be just right for them. But uh, in many cases it is. And it's something that, you know, becomes their lifelong companion, if not their professional life, just a lifelong love. That's right. It's like an old friend that you return to. So, so you started on guitar. That was your first instrument. What other instruments do you play? Well, then I started studying piano and I studied cello. Uh, but around the age of nine or 10 or so, we were going to orchestra concerts in New York. And I remember becoming very intrigued with the orchestra. And I think it was partly the, the sound of the music that were just was unbelievable. As much as I love the guitar, the guitar couldn't do that. I mean, it couldn't sound like an orchestra. And um, it was also the idea, and Matthew, you probably love this because working with courses, it's similar. All these different people coming together and they're so focused on something. They're so completely into it. They're completely absorbed by it, dedicated to it, to make something beautiful happen. And I thought, that's, that's like an amazing team. That's an amazing group of people. Absolutely. When I, when I was younger, my first instrument was piano, and I started when I was quite young. As I got older, though, piano can be a very lonely instrument, especially as a child taking lessons and not necessarily having group experiences, whereas other instruments, they lend themselves to, to coming together with other people. Voices lend themselves to coming together with other people, and, and, and I can, it sounds like that really attracted you. It did. And, and I, you know, I wanted to be in the middle of that somehow. I wanted to be the person that I perceived the conductor was the person who was helping all of that happen, you know, who was bringing it all together somehow, uh, make, letting the musicians be great, but, but guiding them. And that really appealed to me because I thought if I could be in the middle of that and help that happen. And of course, my parents didn't really know what a conductor did, nor did I. But um, I started to study and my guitar teacher was teaching me harmony and theory and uh, ear training. So I, I had this dream of being a conductor uh, from around that young age. And, um, and I, I, I never just like you, I'm sure it's the same with the chorus. There's always a thrill when you hear an orchestra warming up or, you know, you hear that first sound of the chorus singing. It's like, oh, that's what it's about. That's, that's, that's the magic, you know, that's so. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's no other sound than you, you might hear an orchestra on a record or on an album, right? But then when you hear in person, those pianissimos that are so intimate, whereas you listen to an album, you're turning up the dial to make it a little bit louder because you lose it, right? Whereas but in person, it draws you in. It's a completely different experience. It is, and it's almost tactile. It's almost like you can you can touch that sound. You know, you can feel the texture of it, and uh, really live is 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 amazing. And just the idea of all of the the talent that goes into that group who's singing or playing, the amazing talent, the amazing dedication to be doing that. And I have to say, you know, I have the really wonderful privilege of working with choruses once in a while. You know, because we three or four times a year we'll have a piece with our chorus. Um, and there's just something extraordinary about, in our case, people who are uh, avocational singers for the most part. I mean, some of them are very well trained, but they're usually involved in other jobs in the daytime. And having them come to a rehearsal in the evening and just think about all of the great things they've been doing in the day and how tired they are, but 
the moment they start singing, it's as if some magic comes into the room and, you know, we're all listening to them and the musicians and the orchestra are turning around because they just can't believe how wonderful it sounds. I mean, it's, it's something extraordinary. You talk about that magic that comes over you. Do you still feel that when you step in front of an orchestra? I do. I do. I even feel it, you know, when I'm wandering around the room five minutes before and they're warming up, you know, and as they usually do, they're practicing the difficult parts. They're talking to each other, but they're working on it. Even that, just the sound of that sort of, it's a cacophony really, but not really because all of those parts belong and they're just warming up at different times and in different places. I still feel a thrill with that. And then, um, again, the, just the, the magic that can happen when people are all on the same page all playing or singing something different but it all comes together and uh it's i don't think there's a team like a musical team i mean musical teams are something so special because they are there because they love it they're dedicated and they create something that that no one could do by themselves and it's purely collaborative it's not competitive whatsoever you're in this together to make something incredible Matthew, that's so right. You know, I, I, kids working together, it's very important What they, they're on teams and that they, uh, um, you know, work in, in a group. I mean, that's very important for learning. But music is especially good because no one wins or loses. I mean, you're just making something great happen and you're part of that. And uh, other teams, of course, you you know, you want to win and the other person has to lose or or not make the team or whatever. But in music, it's it's a different kind of 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 working hard you're working hard but you're all on the same team and and uh, you're not you're not trying to win over anyone but you're just trying to make something incredible happen so stepping in front of an orchestra you know for me as a as a choral conductor is, is something that i've i've never had the opportunity to do i've never had the opportunity to step in front of a full orchestra as much as when i was younger that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be an orchestral conductor there are so many different sounds happening at the same time. And your job is to bring that together. And, and to some respect, it must be overwhelming, even, even for someone as accomplished as you. And I don't mean overwhelming as in not being able to handle it. I mean overwhelming as this, this sense of awe that just comes over you and bringing that in, embracing that, that commonality. It, it it does. You know, remember, sometimes you have 80 or 90 or 100 people in front of you and what they can create is so amazing. And so it's, it is, it is, it's, it's an almost unbelievable gift to be in the middle of, of that music. And, uh, and it's, it's physically changing. It's life changing, I think. I mean, it really does change people's feelings. You know, people come into the concert hall at eight o'clock and they're, thinking about their day or their problems or, you know, is everything going to be all right with the babysitter or whatever. They sit down and 10 o'clock when they leave, they feel completely different. And they, they didn't do anything other than listen to that music and something inside them shifts around and they leave feeling somehow refreshed, uplifted. Probably they don't talk about it in words, but there's something that happens when you listen to music and even more so when you sing or when you play it. But when you sing, I think it's even a higher a higher uh, experience because your entire body is resonating. I mean, you are the instrument and you're singing. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's amazing to be the instrument that creates this sound. So um, I, I know that people who sing in choruses, um, 
go through a lot of trouble to be there on time and to get out of work and so they have to eat their their dinner the sandwich in the car so that they can quickly get into the rehearsal it's all worth it it's so worth it because when they when they're singing together there's there's no other experience like that. and there's no better gift that you can give yourself than to be part of an ensemble second to none when you're conducting when you're when you're in front of an orchestra there's a fine line between allowing the professional musicians in front of you to do their thing and then you taking over and controlling that how do you personally walk that line you know everyone does it differently and i'm so glad you brought this up because people who uh many people listening don't know what a conductor does assumes that the conductor is like the tyrant of the orchestra and that every and controls everything and then everyone has to watch the conductor and and uh, no one no one is is free to do anything except follow the conductor. and i'm sure some and, are in some instances yes maybe so, <laughs> or in the past some that's have been right that way but but the the great thing is that you have this extraordinary talent in front of you and you want them to be able to show it to be individual to be themselves to be musical in a frame so you know people say oh you're on the top of the triangle or whatever it's no no it's really not that way it's as you know it's inverted you're on the bottom of the triangle triangle and you're trying to to help everyone be excellent or create an environment where everyone can be excellent and and be themselves in a way knowing of course that they're on a team and I think people are willing to do that. They understand, okay, I, I just can't sing louder than everyone else. You know, I, I can't, I'm on a team. I have to be part of the team. But in a way, if the conductor can create a situation where they feel that they can they can be themselves, that there's some flexibility. So I, I'm constantly going back and forth with the orchestra. There are times when the conductor needs to be completely in control because it's very difficult at that at section, maybe rhythmically difficult or always understanding that a lot of people in the orchestra can't hear each other because when the trombones are playing in the back, all they can hear is themselves. You know, they can't really hear anybody else. So they're relying on the conductor to help them make sure that they're, you know, in the right groove because they can't hear. So, um, so the conductor is there to help that happen, to help the ensemble happen, but also to let those moments happen. If there's a solo voice or solo oboe or solo first violin to, back step back i mean maybe not in physically but step back in terms of control and let's that happen and then come back so it's a constant ebb and flow i always tell people that the orchestra to me is the greatest democracy in the world because at any point somebody else is leading you know it could be it could be the principal oboe who has a little solo and we're all playing softly and listening and he might take a bit of time so we're waiting um he's in control or it could be the trombones with this kind of wall of sound that we know we have to be with you know because they're just putting that out there for us or the violas in the middle of the orchestra because they have some tricky rhythmic figure that we have to make sure is clear for them so so it's always this ebb and flow and that's what's wonderful about performance is never quite the same you know it's always a little different and that's what and and that's part of what makes it so beautiful, isn't it? You can walk into a performance assuming that you know exactly what's going to happen and then something changes, right? A life experience changes. You think of it differently and now all of a sudden you're hearing it differently. And as you're hearing it differently, your affect changes and then the orchestra responds slightly to that. 
It's true. It's very malleable. I mean, it's very liquid in a way. Music is, is always changing. So if someone plays something slightly different, the orchestra hears that, the conductor hears that, it may influence how we treat that next phrase or how we respond to that. So it is something that's never completely repeatable. It just happened that once. And that's, that's what's so precious about it. You know, we talked a little bit about walking that fine line. What other conductors have you worked with or maybe studied under or, or had experiences with that you felt really did a great job of that, of that walking that line between allowing the musicians to be in control, but then also knowing when it was their turn? You know, I think, again, every conductor probably does that to a more, greater or lesser degree. Uh, my two teachers who were very different, one was Sixten Erling, who used to be the conductor of the Detroit Symphony, uh, and the other was George Mester, who, who conducted many, many places, Louisville, et cetera. They were both very different. I mean, George was really focused on um, technique, making, making sure the, that the technique was perfect, that the musicians could understand immediately what you were doing and feel comfortable. And Sixteen Ellen was much more connect, concerned with score study and wh why this was written this way and what it meant and how do you balance that chord. So both of them, I learned a tremendous amount from, and, and I think they were both of the masters at how to deal with an orchestra. Sixten was much more old school about the conductor was in charge. And uh, George was much more humorous about uh, talking to the musicians. But, but one of the greatest influences on my life when I was at Juilliard was that we would have Leonard Bernstein come in and give us master classes. And that, Matthew, was an extraordinary experience. First of all, we were all very frightened. I mean, we, there was a small class. We had a four or five conductors. We were all very frightened uh, of doing anything in front of Leonard Bernstein. And he'd, he'd walk into our rehearsal room, you know, as you know, the rehearsal room, and uh, always smoking a cigarette with a little cigarette holder. He smoked all the time. And wasn't supposed to be smoking in Juilliard, but nobody ever told him that. Told him that. Uh, and um, the elect it was like electrifying. I mean, when he walked into the room, the, the atmosphere in the room changed. He was such a big personality. And he was basically not concerned with either of those approaches from my teachers, um, accuracy or clarity. He didn't really care about that. Or even looking at the score, you know, in, in excruciating detail, he didn't care about that. He cared about one thing and he would always talk to us about it, the emotion in the music. That's all that, that's in the end, he said, that's what it's about. I mean, you could conduct it perfectly. Um, you could have perfect stick technique and say nothing. And you could have studied the score in every, every single note of the score, which I'm sure he knew anyway. I mean, he was a great, great genius, but, um, and that also could say nothing, but you have to know what the score means emotionally. And one of the, the most powerful lessons was we were studying Carmen, the opera Carmen with him. And we were trying to be very clear and give cues in the right places and all. And he said, well, what does that have to do with Carmen? I said, well, you should be thinking of yourself in the bull ring in Seville. And the sun is beating down on you. It's, it's, it's like, burning hot and you're hearing the screaming of the crowds they're screaming and you're smelling the blood of the bull on that sand that's what it's about that's what it's about that's what you have to replicate and uh, and he he approached every score that way he was totally into it he became gustav mahler or he became beethoven when he was conducting those works and uh, in the end i mean not everyone could be like him no one could be like him really but um 
but it was a great lesson to learn about. In the end, it's about what is there human in that music that speaks to other human beings? Because that's what the composers would have wanted in any case. Do you find that there is a, a composer that you personally connect with very naturally, maybe more so than another? Well, I think there's more of a time period that I really am drawn to, and I and I and so I, I connect with them. And that's the first half of the 20th century. And I thought the music of that time. Oh, I guess the time was a very tumultuous one. I mean, between the the Industrial Revolution and the two world wars in that period, and and uh, the changing from an agrarian you know society to one that's working in factories and, and uh, cities and uh, and fear, the fear and the hope at the same time. So whether it's Gustav Mahler or or Bella Bartok or Stravinsky or Sibelius, all of these people who were writing in that time, uh, expressing expressing the, the 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 fear of what's happening, the this you know how they're feeling about life changing so fast, to uh, a great hope for what the future will be. So that that's the kind of music I like because the, these composers are not saying a word, but in their music, or Shostakovich, I mean, they're painting a picture of of what their time is like, what 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 life is like in their time, and in a way, it's like a document of history. You know, it's uh, Shostakovich himself. I think he said, um, "Music is the whisper of history against the noise of time." So mm. that all we have all we have left of is looking at history is in the music. In a way, it's it's really very, very telling because what do we remember of ancient civilizations? We don't know much about their, you know, their building plans or their, you know, or their economic plans or whatever. We know the beautiful art they left us, and then when it gets a little later, the music that they left us, the the paintings that they left us, that survived. So, I think music is is like a history lesson, and I, and that period means a lot to me. Do you feel that there are any composers now, living composers, that that are that are telling our story? That there are many, there are many, especially right now. I think when we've gone through the pandemic, we've gone through a great, great unrest in our country. You know, and trying to get get a more of, of a much fairer equality for everyone. Uh, all of a sudden, that's become very, very much a part of our lives now. And I think that the music that's being written does reflect that. Is it always comfortable for us to hear that? No, but but maybe it shouldn't be comfortable. Maybe, you know, like Mahler, for, for instance, he was noted as a conductor, but people did not like the music he wrote. His audiences hated his music. They found it strange and, and sort of threatening and kind of incomprehensible. We might find that now in some of the music that's being written because they're telling our time and and it is uncomfortable. It is, it is, we worry. I mean, it, right now, you know, like you're the young people that you're teaching to have to live through this is something that, that uh, who could ever have predicted that? And, and I, you know, feel so, so sorry for them living through this and, and for such a long period. But, but, um, but music is, is a mirror. Music is a mirror and, and it's the best kind of mirror because it aren't, there aren't words, you know, so it, they don't, it's not defined. We feel what we can in that music, whatever it means to us, illuminates us and you know, how we're thinking about it, but it doesn't limit us. You know, something with words tends to limit you because we know the, 
We know what the words mean, but the music we can't really say, oh, I know what that means. No, but somehow it says something to us, even if we can't describe what that is. Hmm. Uh, let, let's go back in time for a minute. When you were now done as a student and you were transitioning into a professional life, was there a moment where you feel, I'm here, I, I've made it, I'm, I'm on my way to where I want to be? No, I have to say no. I mean, on the way, maybe. But I think as, as, as a musician, as a conductor, certainly as a mu musicians too, uh, it's, I feel like there's a, a road ahead of us constantly. You know, we're always learning about new music. We're learning how to lead our groups we're learning from our groups that we're working with all the time. We're changing our mind as we be, as we just grow as people and have relationships with people. We react to art differently. So I think it's a, just a it's a road without an end. You know, I talk talk to young people sometimes and say, you know, you have, if you're going to be a musician, you have to be willing to accept that that all of your life is a learning process. You really won't get to that point where you say. Well, now I don't, I don't have to practice anymore. I don't have to study anymore. Now I've arrived. You never get to that point. And you don't want to get that to that point. You don't want to be there. You want to be constantly looking for what didn't you see or what might be hiding there in the music and learning that way. And, and it, it comes to it does. And it's almost to the point where the more you know, the more you know that you don't know, the more you realize that there, there's so much more to learn. There's so much more to experience. You're so right, Matthew, because, you know, I was thinking the other day that pieces that I thought, well, this piece is not so hard. Now everything seems hard because I think about them in a different way. And it's like, you know, this piece is it's not as simple as I thought it was. This really has more depth and more complexity and more more decisions to be made, more more uh, more ways of thinking about it. So it's as if things get more complex. But I think that's a good thing. And it's it's funny that, you know, that. Uh, Maybe artists have to think that way, and, and it's, uh, it's just a journey, and a beautiful journey. And the moment you take that easy piece for granted is the moment that you stop making music. Is there a piece of music that you haven't performed, but that you really you just want to get your hands on, or you want to dig into, or maybe one that you have and you just, there's something about it you need to revisit? Oh, but all the pieces, there are always things to revisit, but we were scheduled this year to close our year with a Mahler Second Symphony, which I have done before, but we were so looking forward to doing this because those pieces you do rarely because they're so big, they require so many musicians and extra people coming in and a chorus, of course, and and uh, the chorus at the end of that is like something from heaven. So, I mean, it's... And we were looking forward to that and we had to, of course, cancel it because we're working with very small groups right now. Um, so I'm thinking that that's the one that I, well, I want to see maybe in a year or two when things are back to normal and we're healthy again doing that. So, so it's more like repeating something that we were looking forward to do, doing. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an important piece of music too. The, um, you mentioned that you do some work with, with youth. What are your experiences with youth nowadays? Well, I do a lot of work with young people in the summers because I go to a lot of festivals. So Interlochen is probably the youngest group that I work with. They're high school age, very gifted. And then most of the other groups are college or post-college. And what I always love about these experiences, Matthew, is something that you have every day. The, 
the positive energy, the optimism, the belief in the future of young people. I mean, we probably get more worried about, okay, how are we going to continue to support orchestras and courses and, and uh, build them up together again after this pandemic? You know, how can we make sure that they'll be strong and healthy again? But young people are much more optimistic. And when I ask, I ask them sometimes, do you worry about the future if you decide to go to music as a profession? And they say, oh no. So well, how come you're not worried? And they'll say, because we, we're going to make it work. We're going to make everyone love our music. We're going to make people love music. They, they want to share that so much, so how great music is, that it, it always makes me feel so optimistic about the future. Their undauntedness, you know, they're not worried about little details. They know what's important. The music is important and the music is great and the music will survive. And, and, and the youth are fearless, aren't they? They are. They are. We need. We need to know that. I mean, we need to, to hear them say that, because it just makes us realize that, uh, you know, the music is stronger and 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 eternal, and we'll never lose that. Absolutely. And and I feel, at least for me, I become re-energized when when I'm working with with especially with such talented youth. I I, I personally see the way I do things a little bit differently, and I'm changed. Yeah. They teach you a lot without even being aware of it. I mean, I, I'm looking through here. I, I listed out so many of these awards and honors that you've that you've had. Are there any that really stand out to you um, as, as particularly important? Well, you know, I think things that that I that happened with other people. For instance, I won a Grammy last year for the music of one of my dear friends from New York. I mean, a, a person who I've known for decades now, and I've conducted a lot of his music, and to be with him when that Grammy was presented for his music was an experience I'll never, I'll never forget. Ken, Kenneth Fuchs was, is his name. Uh, those kinds of things, you know, or the first time conducting at Carnegie Hall, um, I'll never forget that experience. Oh, tell us There's, about it. Well, you know, the thing with Carnegie Hall is that you have a feel, feeling that it's filled with ghosts because you know that everyone, everyone, everyone in the music world has been to Carnegie Hall and, and, and performed there. From Tchaikovsky, who opened the hall, imagine Tchaikovsky standing on the podium conducting, um, to Frank Sinatra, to everybody, to you know the greatest rock groups, everyone has been there. And it's as if they leave a little part of their, their essence in the hall. I always feel this way. It's like varnish. The varnish gets thicker, all of these, this kind of varnish made up of the notes and the performances of these people. So just to be in that, in that environment, thinking of all of the music that happened before what you're going to do is just, that's, that's unbelievable. So, so it's, you know, it, it's, it's experiences like that, that are really unforgettable. And, you know, my, my first orchestra was an orchestra of avocational people. It was called the Queens Philharmonic, Queens being in New, well, you know, in New York City. And um, none of these players, people were paid. And uh, we rehearsed once a week, I think it was Tuesday nights. We rehearsed on Tuesday night. And it was a very diverse group. I have a feeling like yours is too. I mean, there were young people from Manus or Manhattan School of Music or Juilliard who really wanted to play a piece like Rite of Spring. We always tried to do big pieces because people wanted to learn them. 
Uh, and they were good players, but not experienced, but they were good players. And then we had avocational people who, you know, um, were older at that point, but had like studied violin for maybe 25 years and played in professional orchestras. Many of them had, had actually, um, you know, fled Europe for whatever reason and come to the United States. So there were people with a lot of training, um, but on the older age spectrum. And, um, and then people who had children and, and uh, would, you know, make carve out that Tuesday night so they could come and play and, or, or people, I remember one, one, one woman, one woman was a, um, a, a civil rights lawyer. I mean, just an amazing woman. And she'd spend all of her day helping people and then she'd come and play, you know, and she wasn't perhaps the most polished player, but she, that, she, that was so important to her. And I think that that was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life because they all played together. Some were more, you know, polished, some were less polished. Everyone loved the pieces we were playing. I mean, they all wanted to play them. And uh, and that Tuesday night became for them kind of like a, a personally sacred night. And I don't know if you feel the same way with your group. Like, you know, nothing was going to interfere with that night. You know, they had to be there and they, had, and they, felt, they felt differently about themselves when they left. And I learned a lot. From and you know that. what I love about that? And as part of what, what I try to do is there needs to be a place for everybody, no matter what, no matter what their level of uh, their, their ability level is, no matter what their socioeconomic status, no matter what their race or gender or, or the way that they identify themselves, there has to be a place for everybody. And that doesn't mean that, that you dumb things down either. That means that, that you treat them the way you would treat any musician or the way that you would treat any person with, with respect and kindness and gratitude. And once you create that atmosphere, the people that have more ability br bring up the people that, that have less technical ability and, and they work together and you create something really incredible. It is incredible. And, and there's just a feeling in that room and a feeling about each other. And you know what I think about music too? Music creates a sort of, um, of uh, ability to, to, uh, to accept people who are different. It, it's like the differences don't matter. You know, when you're making music together, you're all singing the same words, you're singing the same piece. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your age is, uh, how much money you earn. And none of that matters. It's making music, and it's like the equalize equals everyone is equal, and and I think that if we could we could imagine a world where every child learns to play an instrument or sings in in a chorus or choir, um, and then that's not to become professional. Not there's lots of other professions they can choose, but just to learn that that open mindedness that that uh, that music teaches us because there are different ways of treating the music, different ways of approaching the music. There are different people in the world and everything, every one of them is valid. So I think in the middle of your chorus, you must feel that, that all the differences go away and people are just making music. Well, if anything, the differences make the music more beautiful. You know, it, it, you can't overlook that people are different. You can't turn a blind eye. In fact, take people's differences and embrace them and talk about them and make them important and bring that together and imagine imagine that community that you create. And now imagine the music that's going to be created. 
you know, and if we look all over the world, you you go into the smallest villages with small TV populations, or you go to the largest industrialized countries, every single one of them has music. And they have music in some way, and they have communal music. So there's something about music that just, that's needed by communities. Physic physically needed, I think. Physically needed by people. They need to express themselves, and they need to do it with other people. And that being together is something really extraordinary. And think about this in every, every age, how music was the center of life in a way. Religion, I'm sure, religion was a center of life for many and many ancient cultures, but the arts were right there with that, you know, so that in moments of tragedy, music. In moments of celebration, music. In moments of, you know, sort of tranquility and calm, music. Music was always needed. You know, it was so, so much a part of, of being a human being, and we shouldn't forget that. Oh, never. Now, you've been all over the world working with orchestras or making music. Have you found that in some parts of the world, classical music is more mainstream than others? And, and where, where are some of those places? Well, you know what's a, a really astonishing is uh, Japan and China. Now, I, I say astonishing because before uh, through World War II, probably these, these countries had very little contact with the West, so they knew very little about Western music. But in the period of, you know, post-World War II to now, they have become passionately devoted to our Western classical music, and they just love it. I mean, in Tokyo alone, I think there were 12 orchestras in that city, um, and you could go to a concert every night. And they were all full, oh, the concerts were all full because they love music so much. China is the same way. They, they, Juilliard now has a Juilliard of the East, you know, in Shanghai. They have a, a, their own, another Juilliard there because they've just adopted classical music as a kind of language that they love, an emotional language, you know, that they, they understand. And, you know, this may sound like a truism, Matthew, but I find that, you know, when I travel around a lot, Music really is an international language because it's, uh, I can be in places where I can't even speak to people because I don't know any Chinese or Japanese at all. So I can't really speak to them in rehearsal where I can sing in motion, but, but um, somehow their reaction to the music is the same. They struggle with the same passages that are difficult. I mean, uh, you know, they get annoyed with how hard something is. They smile. They smile at the same places. You know, we have this beautiful like resolution. They'll smile always in the same places. Um, they'll laugh even at something that that sounds a little silly. The same. And these are people with completely different backgrounds, but they respond to music the same way. So it must be something about music that that we're hardwired in a way for music i mean human human beings understand music again they may not be able to put it in words but they feel it and understand it because our our brains are are, are sort of uh, in tune with music absolutely the the other thing is and and i have to take a step back because my my background is is a classical background but it's not just classical music that moves people it's not just classical music that brings people together there are so many different types of music and it depends on where you are in the world of 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 what brings people together and and i i just i think it's important to always remember that you know what what we do is is 
is very important. You know, what, what I do is important, what you do is important, but what other people who aren't interested in what I do or maybe the music that you do is also important, yet we can all find commonalities in each other's music. And I think, I think it's so important for us all classical musicians, non-classical musicians, to be very open-minded and, and learn. One of the things I love about teaching high school music theory is right in the very first couple days of school, I introduce them to all different kinds of music, classical, popular, um, rock and roll, jazz, very contemporary stuff and and but we talk about it philosophically and we talk about it in such a way that now all of a sudden there is no barrier between this style and this style and this style it's kind of just there is music and you use this for maybe this idea and then you have this idea maybe you can utilize this uh, and, and you know finding ways to bring I think it's important to find ways to bring orchestral music, to bring choral music to a population that wouldn't necessarily have grown up listening to it. How can, what are some of the things that, because I know that's something that you do, you bring music into, into, into communities that might not. I know, I know you have half of Buffalo coming to your, <laughs> to your performances. I mean, what have you done actively to engage non-classical musicians? Well, I think, first of all, it's just what you said. We have to make them know that, that they're welcome, that there's no, there's no, like, this is music is for only this kind of person and this music is for this kind of person. No, the doors are open and that they don't need to know anything about it. They have already every everything they need to, to love music. It's just their brain. That's it. I mean, just the way that they're a human being. So they don't have to get anything. They don't have to read a book. They don't have to study music. They just have to come in. And usually they're overwhelmed by, by music. And and it's, it's amazing to see how there is something similar at the core. I remember when I was working in California in a community that had a lot of um, sort of Southeast Asian immigrants very poor people who, you know, were settling down and, and trying to earn a living. And we would bring them into the concert hall. They'd never heard Western classical music. And at first, the first time we were absolutely sort of kind of shocked because they laughed. They And then we realized that whenever something was delightful to them, they would laugh. So if it got to a beautiful chord, they would laugh. And we would <laughs> They would just laugh with happiness. And I thought, well, that's great. I mean, they, they're just expressing that they like that, you know, and we, we, we've sort of don't laugh as much as we should probably, but they did laugh every time something was beautiful. And uh, it's, it's amazing to think that, that um, music touches people so, so much, you know, it's just, just amazing. I'll tell you one quick story because I think this is so beautiful. Um, some um, Swedish uh uh, anthropologists were, were visiting a pygmy tribe to study their music. They were musicians, musicologists, and they were trying to understand the music of the pygmies because they had their, their own music and it meant something. Everything was every kind of mode thing meant something. Um, and uh, so at, before they left, the pygmies wanted to know what kind of music they listened to. And one of the Swedish people had, you know, sort of earphones and, and, and gave it to the pygmies, and it was Abba. Now, I don't even know if you know who Abba was, but it was a very Swedish thing. So, 
And the pygmies hated that. They hated that. And so another person said, oh, I try this, try this. And he put on the very slow, the slow movement, second movement of Beethoven seventh, mm -hmm. you know, that, that haunting sort of march. And they, they wouldn't give the music back. They had to have that music. They had to have that music. They loved it. And they, in a translate, to a translator, they asked them, well, why do you like this music? And they said, because it makes us feel like birds. And I thought that that was the most beautiful thing. Now, we maybe as Western people would never say that, but to them hearing Beethoven's seventh, the second movement for the first time, it makes us feel like hmm. birds. I mean, this was amazing. So there's something unifying about music, as you said, brings us all together. That's fascinating. It just shows me that there's some thread in there that can hold us all together. And, you know, if, if somehow every young person had that chance to feel what that feels like making music, because listening to music is great, but actually making music, singing or playing, that's something else, you know, then, then the world would be a much mm. better place. I think the arts are, are crucial classes because people find themselves, these young people find themselves and they can be successful and in being successful, then they can help other people. Yes. I often say, can you imagine if we got all the, all of our country's leaders together and they just sang together? Can you imagine how different our world would be? And then get the leaders of, of, the, of all the countries around the world together to just make music together. Can you imagine how, 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 how that would change the entire course of, of the future? It would, and it would change them right away. I mean, the moment they started to actually do something together that was beautiful, they they would would never forget that. I mean, it's just it's so important for young people to to make music. I, I think of these experiences of, you know, Bobby McFerrin having you know an entire stadium of people of tens of thousands of people singing in however many part harmony that he creates, you know, and there are so many others in, in, in our world that do that same thing. Uh, just what kind of a changing experience and, and there might be 30,000 people in the room, but you feel connected to every single one of them, don't you? You do, you do. I remember once observing this, my percussion section in, in Buffalo was giving a percussion class to a group of high-level bankers. They'd been brought in as a team building exercise. And these high-level bankers were extremely serious. And you could tell, Matthew, <laughs> that they thought this was fine. You know, well, they had to do this team building thing. And so they were just not going to enjoy it. They just were sort of annoyed that they could have had a half a day off. And so they started out very suspicious, very non-engaged non and and um, and then they started, our, our percussionist, they gave them all a drum and they said, okay, let's do call and answer. And it's gonna get harder and harder. So just listen carefully. They play some simple fragment of a rhythm and then they'd have to play it. In about 10 minutes, those people were so into it. I mean, they were like overly into it. They were laughing. They were so, they were transformed from these rather dour kind of disengaged, almost resentful of having to be in this exercise to people who they just wouldn't, they didn't want to go home. They just wanted to play the drums. <laughs> and it, it just shows that there's something so powerful. We just have to unleash it, unleash it and let people yes, be in the middle. Absolutely.
What do the words rise up mean to you and in your life? You know, when you when I looked at that, because you you'd mentioned that that question, and, and I have this image of what rise up means to me, and I don't, you'll understand it as a conductor. You know that moment when you're working with the chorus, you know, you're working, we work, we have long rehearsals, two and a half hour rehearsals. So the chorus is almost always sitting, you know, when, especially at the beginning of the process. So they're sitting and then, but then it comes towards the end of the rehearsal and you say to them, okay, let's, let's all rise. Let's rise up. And they stand up and they sing full voice. And it's like, yes, that's what we were working on so we could do this. So when you said the words, both words rise up, I thought that's that moment when we say, okay, we've worked on this for two hours and we got it. We worked hard on little, little fragments of it. Now we're going to stand up and sing it. And you know, uh, well, you know better than I, and when you stand up, of course, your body sings mm -hmm. much better. You know, you, you know, you sort of open and loop and you can sing and, uh, and you're ready to sing at that point. So, uh, so beautiful you know right now we we have we feel so deprived of not having people sing you know it's, it's so and not being able to sing in in groups uh that we realize how important it is to us but that great moment when they stand up and say okay you know we you know we're not tired now we're ready to stand up and sing and so i mean it rise up it, it's it's a kind of you know it's a metaphor for just looking towards the sky and seeing how beautiful life is and, and oh, I love that and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask how important to you is it that you are I don't know if it's the first or one of the first women to conduct a major orchestra in this country and and one of the first around the world is is that something that that you hold dear you know not really Matthew and I have to say why not I didn't realize that women didn't conduct. And again, I'm just saying my parents were not musicians, professional musicians at all. And so I, I didn't know. I only found that out when I entered a conservatory and my teachers started to say, this is gonna be a tough situation because there's not women who are really well known yet. And, and uh, but by that time, I, I, I was so focused on, on, on doing that, that I didn't think about it. But, but I know that there are some people who go into professions knowing that, that they have this responsibility or that they, they're going to do something great or they're going to break that glass ceiling. So I always say, I can't take any credit. I didn't even know I was doing it. I just wanted to conduct an orchestra. I had no idea that women were in such a small minority. So, uh, so I, it, it just happened. And, but now I, what, what makes me feel good is that I get a lot of calls all, all the time from women, younger women who want to ask me advice about anything, you know, what should I wear or how do I deal with it? How do I deal with a board that I have to work with or, you know, any, any kind of issue that they have, which we all have in, in, in any kind of leadership role and that um, the experiences I've had maybe can help them or at least let them know that it's happened before. And, uh, you know, there are ways that it can get better and, and, and it will get better. But, but uh, I think it just happened to me because, you know, sort of by accident. But, uh, but I, I'm so glad it was the right time when, when I was able to study. I feel very grateful. That's wonderful. That sometimes ignorance is bliss, <laughs> right? So, you know, sometimes it's nice, it's nice to not know that there have been limitations on those who have come before you and me. As a man, I haven't experienced that, but I, I, I am so 
excited about what I am seeing, about how the world is changing and how 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 women are are stepping forward and taking these incredible leadership roles of orchestras, of choruses, or, or as performers, as as leaders, um, administrative leaders in, in the arts, and 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 that excites me. And and people of other minorities, people of color, people from other parts, uh, uh, immigrants, people from all different walks of life. Now, right, the the mold is changing, and I find that inspiring. And and it just goes to show that anybody can do anything. If you have a love for something and you have a, a knack for something and you can find something that you're good at and something that you love, then go for it. Make a life out of it because you will never regret it a day in your life. I agree, I agree with you, and I think almost all musicians would agree, you know, whatever the problems in the, you know, the little bumps in the road and the fact that sometimes it's hard to make a living or whatever, you know, or you take auditions and they don't always work out immediately. Um, but in the end, when you go to work and you sit in that orchestra, or you sit in the chorus and you're happy to be there. And not everyone can say that about their professional lives, but but musicians can say that. They're always in the middle of oh, something. Oh, Joanne, thank you so much. And I, I am so grateful that that you have come on and, and taken the time out of your, your busy schedule to, to talk with me. And you you have no idea how much this means to me and, and, and it will mean to my audience when it when it comes out. So thank you. Thank you, Matthew. It was very inspiring to hear you talk. And I really was very moved oh. by what you said. And I am such a fan of, of your organization. You are just doing some, some... Well, I appreciate it so much. Meet the Musicians podcast is produced by Rise Up Chorus, a community music organization whose focus is on bringing the community together to sing. For more information about Rise Up Chorus, visit us online at www.riseupchorus.org. Grant funding has been provided by the Middlesex County Board of Chosen Freeholders through a grant award from the Middlesex County Cultural and Arts Trust Fund. Program funded by Middlesex County, a partner of the New Jersey State Council on the Arts. This is Matthew Lapine saying thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to have you join us again for our next episode when we meet the musicians.